PBS says, quote, The story of baseball is the story of America. It is an epic overflowing with heroes and hopefuls, scoundrels and screwballs. It is a saga spanning the quest for racial justice, the clash of labor and management, the transformation of popular culture, and the unfolding of the national pastime, end quote. Today, in this episode of Bag of Bones, we'll be looking at a few players who decided that they didn't just want to be remembered for playing America's national pastime, but also for murder. Welcome. My name is Elizabeth Bougeret, and I'm that person that, when studying the many facets of history, likes to peek behind the curtain, investigate the hidden passages, drop into the rabbit hole, or dare to walk in the shadows because... We all know that's where the good stories can be found. Take a listen then to discover what dark or peculiar pieces of American history can be found this week from my bag of bones. In September 1845, a group of New York City men founded the New York Knickerbocker Baseball Club. Alexander Cartwright would create the first set of accepted rules for a game that had been previously pieced together since the creation of the modern world. He envisioned a diamond-shaped playing field with bases, 90 feet apart from one another, foul lines, three strikes equals one out, seven innings, three outs. He did take out actually throwing the ball to cause an out when it hit the player. Nine players per team, and not sure who commissioned the selling of peanuts and popcorn, but it might have been penciled in on these brainstorm pages. Who knows? The first professional game was played May 4, 1869, and it grew quickly into the hearts of sports fans everywhere as spectators and players. And while everyone believes that it would be the best job ever to get paid for playing games all day, it's not all it's cracked up to be. The pressure to succeed is never-ending. The hours of travel and being away from family, long nights, long practices, and intense games with a lot at stake. The world watching your every move. Many players sought relief in the bottle, some experiencing for the first time money in their pocket and no one around to tell them what they should and should not spend it on. Alcohol helped them sleep at night. Alcohol was there to help them celebrate. But as we know, the downside to imbibing alcohol is a string of side effects. Depression, impaired judgment, mood swings, false bravado, and sometimes, with the help of alcohol, bad things happen. Samuel Crane began his professional baseball career with the team out of New Cumberland in 1912. At 19, he was signed to the Philadelphia Athletics in 1914 as their shortstop. Here he would meet Connie Mack, who would become his most avid supporter both professionally and personally. Sam, as said by some, was the typical good field no-hit shortstop, and mostly sat on the bench in those first few seasons, only actually getting to play on 12 games. Not having come into his skill set as yet, he was passed around from team to team playing with the Washington Senators, Cincinnati Reds, and the Brooklyn Dodgers. He would eventually accumulate, through his team hopping, 174 Major League games in seven years, last appearing in the Majors on April 23, 1922. He had no home runs to his claim, batted a 208 with 30 RBI. 
He was sent to Seattle and eventually became captain there. He met and quickly married local Thelma V. Peterson in 1926. She was a stenographer for a local insurance company. But the spark faded when he met the 25-year-old clerk that worked for the highway department, Della Leiter. She and Sam began seeing each other regularly. She was a recent divorcee, and little did Sam know, he was about to wear the same title. Thelma filed for divorce in the summer of 1928. By this time, Sam had mortgaged his mother's home in order to get an apartment for Della. He could think of no one else but Della. He lavished gifts on her, buying her a diamond ring, new furniture. He signed away his marriage and also turned down the opportunity to play for Buffalo. But this fiery new relationship was not meant to last. Less than a year into it, Della grew bored and went back to her 28-year-old ex-boyfriend, John D. Oren, in July of 1929. Adding salt to the wounds, his divorce from Thelma also came through on the same month. He had no team, no girlfriend, no wife, and was suddenly deep in debt. He took to drinking heavily, if only to not have to face his poor decisions. He tucked a gun into his pocket, deciding that the only way out of this mess was to take his own life. But then, he decided he should destroy those who he felt put him there in the first place. In a bar inside the Bria Hotel in Harrisburg, Sam found Della and John canoodling. John was playing his ukulele, serenading Della in a smaller side room of the bar. Sam pulled out his gun and fired five shots. Two bullets would hit Della Leiter in the chest. One would hit John before he managed to clock Sam in the head with his ukulele. Crane fired another two shots, which hit John. Sam Crane turned and ran from the scene. Three o'clock in the morning, Sam Crane, still inebriated, stumbled his way into the police station and calmly said, quote, I am told I shot somebody, end quote. Not only shot, but neither of his victims survived, escalating the charge to murder. John Oren would die that day, and Adela would fight for her life for another three days, dying on August 7th. At his trial on September 25, 1929, he would plead, saying he was insane from love and alcohol. Crane claimed no memory of the shooting because he was so drunk. His lawyer argued Crane had been drinking almost non-stop in the week leading up to the shooting because he was so distraught over having broken up with Leiter. When Crane testified, he said he came to the realization that Leiter was with him for the money, referring to himself as, quote-unquote, a sort of installment plan lover. The jury was not impressed. He was found guilty of second-degree murder and sentenced to 18 to 36 years. At the Greatford Prison in Pennsylvania, he cleaned his system of alcohol and is said to have become a better ball player. He managed and played shortstop for the prison team. He worked in the superintendent's office doing clerical work, drove the prison fire truck, and nursed a squirrel back to health and kept him as a pet. He would apply for parole every year beginning in 1934. Former manager and friend Connie Mack appeared at the hearing, or sent in a letter on his behalf every year. In 1935, he would state, quote, I think the ends of justice have been met by Crane's exceptionally good record, end quote. Connie Mack went above and beyond soliciting for his friend, promising to give him a job and look after him if he could just be released. 
He would say, quote, I am afraid that if something is not done soon for this boy, it will be too late. He is on the verge of a mental breakdown, end quote. In 1940, Mack would tell a reporter, quote, Sam should have his liberty. He has paid his debt to society. I have a job for him at Shy Park the moment they decide to release him into my custody, end quote. Even one of the wardens came to his hearing, stating, quote, He has learned his lesson, and I honestly believe he could be a useful member of society again if given a chance, end quote. However, there's the other side of the coin. The families of Oren and Leiter didn't care that he was a model prisoner. They too appeared on the behalf of their family members that he selfishly took the life of and wanted affirmation that he would be serving his sentence to the end. On September 5, 1944, at 49 years old, he was granted parole. His top priorities as a free man was to see a night game, get new clothes, see his mother, and go fishing. One reporter wrote that he eventually got married again and had a family before his death of cancer on November 12, 1955. He was 61 years old. Hello everyone, it's time for a Bag of Bones sponsor break, and this one highlights Lumi deodorant. But today, we are not talking about their amazing deodorant products. If you didn't know already, Lumi also creates body wash. Makes sense, right? And you'll be happy to know that the same care that goes into the deodorant carries over to the body wash line as well. Lumi's acidified body wash is clinically proven to work three times better than ordinary soap. Lumi has a low pH, making it perfect for sensitive skin, and it eliminates odor in all the places, promoting healthier, softer skin. If you haven't already tried the body wash, consider using the Bag of Bones link in the show notes to give it a try. It has a money-back guarantee and free shipping with any order of $25 or more. Plus, you help support an awesome podcast. Hint, hint. If you know you stink or you take showers regularly, this product is for you. Give it a try today. Click the link in the show notes. It's 1903 and the World Series is one game away from completion. The Pittsburgh Pirates had just succumbed to another loss to the Boston Americans, placing them at the brink of elimination. Prior to 1903, there was no such thing as a World Series in baseball. In September of that year, before either team had officially clinched the pennant, Barney Dreyfus, the Pirates owner, met with Boston owner Henry J. Kalia, and the two owners agreed that their teams, beginning on October 1, 1903, would square off in a best-of-nine series to determine a true world champion of baseball. The first modern World Series was born. By 1903, the Pittsburgh Pirates were considered the best team in the National League for the past three years. They had the Flying Dutchman shortstop Honus Wagner, who some had considered to be the best ball player overall at the time. He boasted a .355 batting average and led the league in stolen bases and assisted with over 100 runs. The Pirates could also boast of having all-star pitcher Ed Dehaney on the mound. He joined the Pirates in 1901 after playing with the New York Giants since 1895. Steadily improving his skills, he reached a record of 16-8, so the left-handed pitcher was ranked as the number 5 best pitcher of 1902. 
Dehaney had been known to give his former team, the Giants, some grief due to his bad temper, and was even suspended several times because of it. The Pirates believed his grittiness gave the team an advantage, or so they thought. Ed Dehaney's major league career had begun in 1895 with the New York Giants. After seeing him pitch, they recognized raw talent and believed that with a bit of training, he could be one of the greats. The Giants signed 21-year-old Dehaney to a professional contract for $100. He made his pitching debut for the Giants on September 16, 1895, and it did not go so well. In fact, it continued not to go well for the next three starts, but even with the rough beginnings, the New York Times would proclaim, quote, Dehaney, though slaughtered, shows the earmarks of a real ball player, end quote. True to their vision in his natural gift, through continued practice and training, his skills improved. But, unfortunately, it was not enough to save his job from all of his off-the-field shenanigans. Dehaney would be suspended several times between 1897 and 1900 for, quote-unquote, breaches of discipline. By early 1900, Dehaney was drinking so heavily and would become violent and out of control. He would show up to the games completely inebriated or sometimes not even show up at all. He would initiate fistfights with teammates and accuse them from stealing from him. In July of 1901, after another suspension and a verbal altercation with ownership, the Giants had had enough. Ed DeHaney was traded by the Giants to the Pittsburgh Pirates. Little did the Pirates realize that Dehaney's behavior prior to becoming part of the team would be an indicator as to what was coming. He drank heavily and on more than one occasion showed up to the mound completely drunk and still pitched a great game. He was actually improving in his game, winning 12 out of 18 games he started, but his erratic mood swings would overshadow his talent. On May 18, 1903, Ed DeHaney purposefully hit Joe McKinty and Dan McGann of the New York Giants in the back with fastballs. He would later say it was simply because he, quote, hated the Giants since they traded him away, end quote. Things escalated during that same game, which may or may not have involved DeHaney mooning the fans as he was booed from the field, and he was literally stoned by Giants fans following the game. Dehaney was suspended by the National League for the next three games. He began to have violent altercations with his pirate teammates as well, and it would be blamed on his drinking. It was in July of 1903 that the Pittsburgh Post ran the headline, quote, His mind is thought to be deranged, end quote. Maybe they were thinking it. Maybe they didn't want to believe it. But the Post blasted it out for all the world to see. Once in August of 1903, after a win over Cincinnati, he walked off the field, left his team without any notice, and went home to his wife. By now he had been suspended quite a few times, but his team began to worry when he claimed that detectives were following him everywhere he went. Dehaney did not pitch or appear in a single game during the first two weeks of September. It was reported that he was so afraid of the plainclothes detectives that were being sent to murder him that he was terrified to set foot on the field. In late September, he attacked his teammates in the Pirates' clubhouse and was sent home to sober up. 
they had every intention of still using him for the upcoming World Series. But Ed DeHaney would never return to the baseball field again. Ed's wife saw that her husband was having mental issues and even worried for his safety. She hired a doctor to see to his care and also a full-time nurse for their home in Andover, Massachusetts. He was following the events of each game of the World Series, and with every loss he would get agitated. On October 10, 1903, when the news of the final loss of the Pirates to the Boston Americans, Ed DeHaney snapped. He lashed out at whatever was close to him, and then when his doctor came forward to try and calm him down, DeHaney lifted the man up and threw him out the front door. Literally. While the physician lays on the ground in the front yard, DeHaney hurls insults and spits on him, telling him, quote, never to come back here, ever, end quote. I don't think he really had to worry about that. Probably goes without saying. But DeHaney wasn't finished with his tirade. The next day, he was still railing about the loss of the pirates, and at some point he picked up a cast-iron fire poker and began swinging, destroying everything in his path, including his nurse. He ends up beating his nurse into a bloody pulp within an inch of his life. Fearing for her life, the wife runs from the house to the neighbors to call the police. Ed stands in the doorway, wielding his fire poker in his blood-soaked clothing, screaming out to anyone who would listen, berating comments about the American League's Boston Americans. The police were unable to get near the house for over an hour to get help for the nurse as Ed, having acquired a hunting rifle, threatened anyone who came close. Finally, the police were able to subdue him and get him into the police vehicle. Two days later, on October 13th, his team, the Pirates, would fall to Boston with a score of 3-0 and be the first to lose the World Series. Thank goodness Ed didn't hear about that. He was charged with aggravated assault, but was then declared insane and sent to Danvers State Asylum. He was 29 years old. He would slip further and further away from the man he once was and would eventually have no memories of the sport or those that called him friend. He eventually did not recognize his wife or his family and showed no signs of ever returning to a healthy mental state. A local Lowell newspaper would share a comment from his wife, quote, Her husband, the pitcher, shows no signs of improvement while at Danvers Asylum and that he will never recover his reason, end quote. He lived 13 years in the asylum, dying on December 29, 1916, at age 43. As a mother of grown daughters, and with me traveling alone across the country, personal safety is always on my mind. I am always aware of my surroundings, I always let my people know where and when I'm going places, but to add that extra level of safety, I am never unprotected. Thanks to Damsel in Defense, I have several options for my personal safety, and can I just say, they are super cute. But don't think that just because they have bling that they won't do some damage to allow you to get to safety. And Damsel in Defense has thought of everything. DNA grab, GPS alerts, and easy to carry and access should the need ever arise. For your safety and all the women in your sphere, I beg you to check out these amazing products at www.mydamselpro.net forward slash bones. That's www.mydamselpro.net 
forward slash bones. Journalist Brian McKenna would write, quote, Marty Bergen was one of the finest catchers in the National League during his brief stint. His defense was admired throughout the league, end quote. On January 19, 1900, 28-year-old Major League Baseball player Marty Bergen killed his wife, three-year-old son, and six-year-old daughter with an axe in the family's North Brookfield, Massachusetts home before slitting his own throat with a razor. Despite his greatest accomplishments in the world of baseball, this horrific event is what he will be remembered for. Bergen joined the Boston Club of the National League in 1896, making his first appearance in April. It was a 7-3 loss to the Phillies. In 1894, Boston lost their top catcher, Charlie Bennett. Bennett was running to try and catch his train when he lost his grip and fell under the wheels of the train, losing both his legs. He wouldn't be returning to the field, so Boston was desperate. Bergen was ready to fill the position. William Knack from Sports Illustrated Vault writes, quote, The fact that he had stuck there over four full years revealed how much a team was willing to endure to have him behind the plate, playing 87 games in 1897, end quote. In 1898, he would play in a record-setting 125 games positioned as a catcher in 117 of them. Manager Nichols credited Bergen with helping the team win, saying, quote, Baltimore beat us the next three years after we lost catcher Charlie Bennett. Then we got Marty Bergen from Kansas City and won the pennants again in 1897 and 1898, end quote. Future Hall of Famer St. Louis outfielder Jesse Burkett would say to the Worcester Spy in 1900, quote, As a catcher, Martin Bergen was the best the world had ever produced. No man acted with more natural grace as a ball player. There was a finish in every move he made. His eye was always true and his movements so quick and accurate in throwing that the speediest base runners never took chances when Bergen was behind the bat, end quote. His skills out on the field are unquestioned. It was Bergen's behavior behind the scenes that became disturbing. But no one, not even those closest to him, could ever dream of what was to come. He was known as a family man. He would prefer to stay at home with his wife and children at every opportunity. Neighbors would recall his spending hours in the yard playing with his children, preferring his family's company above all others. According to Dion, Bergen's physical therapist, in later interviews, he would recall Hattie had no fear of her husband, that his wife, son, Marty Jr., daughter Florence, and youngest son, Joe, were his everything. They would often be seen riding their horse and buggy together, even if it was just to pick up the mail in town. They lived on a 60-acre farm, so a trip into town was always a treat. On the final game in 1898 in October, Marty Bergen played all nine innings. His hip had been bothering him for some time due to an abscess, and it was decided to have surgery to correct it the following January. So on January 28, 1899, he was under anesthetic for over four hours, and for several weeks and months following the surgery, he would have hallucinations that someone was trying to poison him. On April 24th, he found out his son, Martin Jr., died of diphtheria. 
This is a highly contagious disease that swells up the throat with mucous membranes and eventually suffocates the person by blocking the airwaves. Bergen was devastated that he was not at the home to be with his son. He was, of course, granted leave to return home to be with his family, and all were surprised when he came back only two weeks later. Though his teammates tried to welcome him on his return, Bergen started picking fights and no longer trusted them. He accused them of making fun of him and laughing at him about his son's death behind his back. He was constantly on the lookout for assassins, convinced someone was after him. He began sitting sideways and walking sideways, keeping his back to the wall so he could spot suspicious people approaching to possibly do harm from either side. Boston's team president tried to be empathetic to what Bergen was going through, but he could also recognize the side effect it was having on the rest of the team. He encouraged the players to try and give Bergen a wide berth. Some tried to blame it on drinking, but his teammates would come to his defense and claim he never touched a drop. He was guilt-ridden about being away while his son had been suffering and ultimately died, having to be later notified of the death. He just couldn't seem to get past it and would escalate into anger with his club. An anonymous Boston player confessed to a reporter, quote, He has made trouble with a good many of the boys and we just give him a wide berth. But he's a ball player, and once we get into a game, personal feelings are set aside in admiration of the artist, for such he is. End quote. Throughout the 1899 season, Bergen consistently requested time off to return to his family. He would play a few games and then ask to go home. Bergen could feel his world unraveling, but was powerless to do anything about it. He would confess to his pastor that he felt like he was going insane and he feared his own thoughts. He asked for help, begged for help, but in 1898, no one knew how to help him. William Knack wrote, quote, Phantoms were wheeling like crows now in his head. Increasingly distracted and morose, he skipped out on the ball club in the middle of a pennant race in late July and stole home to his 60-acre farm in North Brookfield, Massachusetts for a couple of weeks, believing that his teammates were plotting to kill him. He believed that the National League had hired his personal physician, Louis Dion, to poison him. He had cried like a frightened boy after unburdening himself of his paranoid fantasies to a reporter for the Cincinnati Enquirer, and had begged the man not to write what he had said. The reporter complied. The clamor and cheering at games had been driving Bergen to a state of heightened agitation. End quote. In January 1900, Marty's father, Michael, was supposed to come and live with them. On the night he showed up, he had been drinking heavily, and Hattie, fearing for her safety, it's assumed since we have no way of knowing, would not allow him in the house and told him to sleep in the barn. That night, she also brought the shotgun to bed with her. January 19th, 5.30 in the morning, Martin Bergen rose to begin the day. His wife and children still sound asleep in the next room. He went to their kitchen to start the fire in the stove, which was their main heat source. He lifted the plates from the burners and scooped out the ash from the night before. He then placed old dried newspaper in the stove on the grate. In his stockinged feet, he'd shuffle toward the woodhouse, seeing that the indoor supply had been used up. Things that he would do on any regular day. On this day, however, he carried two shotgun shells in his pocket, and when he reached the woodhouse, 
he did not return with an armful of dry tinder or split logs. He came into the house with a heavy axe that leaned in the corner of the shed on any given day. And then he snapped. He took the flat side of the axe and crushed Hattie's scale, bringing it down several times. He next turned the blade side and struck his son in the head only once. His daughter, Florence, was found on the kitchen floor, her skull bludgeoned beyond recognition. The axe fell from his hands, and he made his way to the mirror hanging on the wall in the kitchen. No one knows how long he looked at himself in that mirror before he picked up his shaving razor. He cut himself from one side of his neck to the other. His body slumped to the floor beside his daughter's. His father would later find the bodies. Several years after the murder-suicide, his brother Bill would tell a reporter, quote, It was as if he was possessed. The demons got to him and never let him go. End quote. Martin Bergen would be remembered in the world of baseball as one of the greatest catchers of all time. He played in 344 major league games for the Bean Eaters, 337 of which came at the catcher position. He had a career batting average of 265 with 180 runs scored, 339 hits, 69 extra base hits, 10 home runs, and 176 RBI. And there's one more story I'd like to share, if you've still got a moment. Quick sponsor break, and I'll be right back with an interesting tale of Tax Latimer. Hello listeners, we're Katie, Amber, Kylie, and Matt. And we are the hosts of Save Me an Isle Seat, a show that talks about musicals in an understandable and relatable way. If you like musicals or theater in general, or if you're interested in them but don't know where to start, we'd love to help introduce you. Come find us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Or on our website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. And we'll be sure to save you an aisle seat. Before I can get into the story of Clifford Wesley Tax Latimer, who is best remembered for debuting with the New York Giants in 1898 and then spent his time with the Pittsburgh Pirates in the 1900s, I need to introduce you to another fellow, Charles Mackrot. These two were co-workers at the Pennsylvania Railroad and drinking buddies. In 1920, Latimer put his name on the ballot for the election of Sheriff of Green County. He did not win and was assigned to work under Lieutenant Charles Macrod. They both worked as police officers, but over time, Latimer would notice that Macrod would pull some pretty shady antics, picking and choosing which laws to enforce or even which ones to follow. There may or may not have been more than one incident where his car was set on fire to collect insurance money. Bribes and threats were all rumored to be very much within his pay grade. In August of 1924, when too many incidents happened that could be ignored, Macrod was asked to step down from his position as lieutenant. When he refused, he was terminated. He immediately blamed his good friend Tax Latimer. He put on a full-scale smear campaign saying that Latimer was spreading rumors trying to get him fired. He claimed that Latimer was out to tarnish his good reputation. Macrod went so far as to put a death threat out on Latimer. Oddly enough, throughout the fall, while Latimer was out on his rounds, an unknown assailant would fire shots at him. The shots were too far away to do any harm, but the message was certainly clear. Latimer had to be on his guard at all times and was never without his weapon. 
On November 26, 1924, the two enemies just happened to face off outside of the county courthouse. On this particular day, it was known by all who lived in the small town of Zena, Ohio, that the employees and police officers would come today to the courthouse to collect their pay. According to those who witnessed the events of the day, they would say that Macrod had arrived early and was obviously waiting for something or someone. And since he no longer worked for the railroad, he really had no reason to be there. In mere moments once they saw each other, they were face to face, threatening and arguing before the crowd who just wanted to collect their pay and go home. They said that Macrod brandstanded and showed off to the crowd how Latimer cost him his job and had been bad-mouthing him to anyone who would listen. And just then, the sun caught the gleaming edge of a long knife which Macrod pulled from his pocket. He was close enough to have cut off Latimer's nose, but instead, he stepped back dramatically and shouted, I'll get you before sundown, even if I have to get you in your own backyard, end quote. That was the final straw. Latimer pulled out his thirty-eight and shot Macrod four times. He fell to the ground, dead. Being surrounded by police officers, Latimer dropped his weapon to the ground and raised his hands. He surrendered quietly. The trial was set for December 29, 1924, and it was a media sensation. Tax Latimer was set to use self-defense as his plea because he thought his life was at risk. The man had a knife and made a death threat, after all. However, Macrot was shot four times in the back. He was walking away. Not that he might not have become a threat later in the day, as his verbal warning indicated, but it wasn't enough for the jury to let him off with a slap on the wrist. He was convicted of second-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison at Ohio State Penitentiary. But wait! There's more. Behind bars, Tax rediscovered his love for baseball. He both played and managed the prison team. He was a model prisoner, and it wasn't long that he was allowed certain privileges, including being able to move about freely within the facility without restraints or a guard being present. He was given various jobs that he excelled at and gained respect from his peers. On November 8, 1926, a group of 13 prisoners attacked the guards and attempted an escape. To help quell an uprising, Tax was allowed to be armed and assisted the guards in restraining the escaped prisoners. It was because of his bravery that his friends and advocates from outside rallied for his parole. The breakout attempt got headline coverage statewide and beyond, and soon the governor of Ohio, Myers Cooper, was flooded with requests to pardon Tax Latimer. The governor at the time was not convinced. On April 21, 1930, a massive fire broke out during the night. The fire spread so quickly it took the lives of over 300 men. The inmates had to be freed from their cells in order to save their lives, and action had to be taken quickly as the fire was out of control. Once again, Tax Latimer was called upon to keep the chaos from resulting in more deaths and also escaped inmates. The prison guards deputized and handed him a gun. He was placed outside the walls to help encourage inmates to stay put. In less than six years into his life sentence, he was pardoned of his crime. Then Governor Myers Cooper forgave Latimer and set him free Christmas Eve, 1930. 
He would settle into a quiet life working in hotel security in Cincinnati. He would die of a heart attack at the age of 60 on April 24, 1936. Thanks for listening to this week's episode, and now you are equipped with some dark history trivia as we kick off baseball season. If you know of anyone that loves learning bite-sized American history stories that's not just the stuff you'd find in your history books, be sure to let them know about the Bag of Bones podcast. Awesome people just know awesome people. Let's all be awesome together. If you'd like to connect, come hang out with me on Facebook or Instagram at Bag of Bones Podcast. I'd love to know about what topics you'd be interested in hearing more about. I'm Elizabeth Bougeret. Until next week, then. Bag of Bones is created and hosted by Elizabeth Bougeret, produced by the Ragtag Network and History Revisited, music by Johnny Reed. To learn more about the show, visit elizabethbougeret.com. For more podcasts from the Ragtag Network, visit their website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. Copyrights by Elizabeth Bougeret and DCT Enterprises.